everybody. Welcome back to Theory Underground. I am your host today, David McCarricker, and we're joined by the very patient Tony, aka One Dime. Welcome, One Dime. How's it going, man? What's up? I'm pretty good. How about you? What you guys have been talking about on the stream while I was gone? Because I didn't get a keep. I didn't really get a keep track of it. I was busy throughout the day. So have you been around? So have you been in and out for any of it in the last two days? No, but I saw you had. We're gonna have Nina Power and Catrone, and I was definitely gonna listen to that for sure because you already know when Catrone is there. I'm gonna. Li- I've listened. You know, I'm gonna listen to it, <laughs> even if I don't agree. I'll listen to it. That's you know, uh, J.M. Adams, who was just on with us, said the exact same thing. You know. Jay was like, you know, I disagree with Platypus on basically everything they write down, but in conversation, I'm always agreeing with them. So, you know, Mm. I get that a lot. And basically, I think the way I I probably feel similar to you in that I just like someone like Catrone is just a powerhouse and a wealth of knowledge. And he is just inherently worthwhile to listen to as an educator. Right. And so certainly. Yeah. But um, before I guess we before I really answer your your main question, there is I, I want to introduce you for the people who are new to you. So uh, this is one dime for everyone who doesn't know. Basically, he makes really good video essays, and I don't just mean like really good. I mean like excellent, and it's it's actually a a, a problem for him. I think it it actually that that puts a little bit too much pressure on his creative process, and <laughs> he's he's so productive that he gets really into making these these really great video essays that get like, you know, one one hundredth of the the views that they ought to in these kinds of circles. But, you know, I also say that he's like uh, the video essayist from Left Tube that I that I that I still talk to, right? So I just Left I tube. really Left Tube or whatever, right? Yeah. So I just I respect the work that he does and uh, I think that it's worth checking out. And so without, with all that said though, what would you like to add to that introduction? What's important for people to know? Sure. Uh, I appreciate the uh, compliments for sure. Uh, I do put a lot of work into this stuff. Like I really try to research the topics before I get into them, but that's not people think I'm, I've been gone from YouTube for a while, really because I'm working on some grand project. Unfortunately, that's not the case. It's because, uh, really uh academic life in the background but i should have i've produced a lot of essays or a lot of really good essays that i plan to turn into videos and i have a video coming out uh that i I recorded in september um but i never got around to actually like making like cutting up the audio and like making it into proper video um it's my third and final part installment of my series on russia on modern russia it'll be on the ideology of the putin regime i say that it's not actually about the ideology of the Putin regime. I talk about that, but I don't, I try to, the whole point of it is to show the ideology actually doesn't really matter because there isn't, uh, but you'll, you'll see. It's a very interesting video. Um, but yeah, I, I do definitely get very into the stuff I'm doing, but I've been taking a bit of a break from YouTube due to other responsibilities, but I plan to kickstart uh, with the bang, certainly. In streaming oh, and yeah. in videos. As you, I've and, told you privately, I have a 
I want to make a video on the cultural revolution because I wrote a very lengthy essay with a lot of research on the cultural revolution, Mao's cultural revolution. Right. That I this, think will be very useful to some people you, on the left. And this is useful because it's kind of a critique of some tendencies today. Is that what it was? Partially. I mean, I intend to have the first part debunk the kind of propaganda around it because there's most of the like, you know, bourgeois uh, books and narratives, certainly narratives and documentaries on the Cultural Revolution are, are absolutely terrible and inaccurate. Like it's so bad that I think it might be the most misrepresented event in, in modern history. I think that it's even more misrepresented than like Bolshevik Revolution, just because it's a very bewildering event. Um, but because of that, because like if all it will take really is like a closer examination of that event to realize the um, narratives around it, at least in the, certainly in the West and even China, modern China itself are, are you know, bollocks. Uh, the, a lot of Maoists will kind of believe whatever they want to believe about the Cultural Revolution. And uh, they'll take the kind of Mao's intent from it and not really at all critically analyze what led to the cannibalization. I say implosion of the Cultural Revolution because people think it was just like merely defeated by the state. And the state was, of course, crushed it in like a long six year process, but it was able to do so because it already imploded. You know, and it cannibalized itself within. within. And I won't get into too much detail, obviously, it's a crazy topic, but why I think it's useful is because I think the implications of the failure of the Cultural Revolution have actually more interesting implications and lessons for what I believe are like libertarian socialists than, let's say, like Stalinists. Because I don't think Mao, the Mao experiment, was at all similar to Stalinism. It's completely different. Incomparable. Right, right. But well, it, it tried very it tried very hard to not be the same, right? It did it did try not to be the same, as far as I understand. Yeah, and it was very different. Like I think it was one of the most unique experiments of all of actually existing socialism, and in many ways one of the most depressing. Because it's it one can't really blame it on like um a big bad figure like Stalin, right? So there's no Trotskyist narrative to the Maoist experiment. And there's no, what the experiment that, the idea that uh, this was a tyrannical project by Mao to control the Mao, it's, it's, it's absurd. Mao unleashed war against his own party. This was like, I, I didn't want to go into too much detail. This is a rabbit hole, I'll warn you. Well, but it's, I will say, it's, it's... I'll give, I'll recommend the books, which I drew a lot of my uh, insights from. So there's there's the books that are good for just if you want to if you don't know anything about the Cultural Revolution there's the the best bourgeois historian is definitely it's a book called Mao's uh, Last Revolution by two bourgeois um, authors but they're out of like the kind of liberals type they're the most impartial and they also kind of come to the conclusion that yeah the idea that Mao is like this like tyrannical despot just trying to further his own power no if anything he was a crazy utopian who thought you could just like wage the masses against the party. So that's a chronological If you And then there's the debunking myths. There's the one the Maoists always recommend called um, China's Lost Past. I think something like that, but it's by an author called Mobo Gao. Uh, that one gets recommended a lot. He's not actually a Maoist, but that one's good if you just want to debunk little things. Now the best book, this is the one most important, is called Cultural Revolution and Revolutionary Culture by a guy named Alessandro Russo. 
I think if one who knows a little bit about the cultural revolution, like some background already, that's the best book because that's the book that actually looks at what actually, why did this movement that had moments of unprecedented egalitarian experiments completely implode on itself. So that's a good critical look. If you want to see why it failed, that's a great book. Uh, the one by Alessandro Russo. He's a left, he's, a, he's like a, he used to be a, he's like a post Maoist. So he kind of is a, but very critical. He kind of thinks, what is Maoism? The Maoism posed more questions. You can't really form an ideology of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, because the Cultural Revolution didn't give any solutions. It, it actually created an existential void in, in communist debates. In Mao himself, Mao questioned stuff like the dictatorship of the proletariat questioned class as a category i mean it's, it's a serious event like i think this is the most unexamined event in leftist history that you know people are talking about the ussr nobody talks about the cultural revolution i think it's no that's why it'll be no, probably no. my next big video project but uh the, mo won't be the for most a while. the most people will talk about it is to say that it's either good or bad right like that this you've already provided more nuanced sauce than anything anyone's ever said on the internet about the topic. So it's really nice, you know. I don't know about that, but certainly most, yeah, you're right. Like they tend to, it's moralistic. Like um, it's, a, it's whether it's bad or good, you know, it's the way revolution in general is treated kind of like a, a moral, moral thing as opposed to an event that one either pays fidelity to and critically examines. That's the way I, I have a, uh, this new kind of framework I like to look at revolutions is if you're on the side of like a, a radical emancipatory politics you kind of want to have a fidelity to an event so like what is the goal of an event and you actually want to look at it but you want to look at it critically because you can't uh, to resurrect a lost potential you have to you can't just fetishize it you can't just have nostalgia for it you have to critically look at it and you have to derive lessons from it um and let, I'll just say this, the Chinese government in around 1984 uh, under Deng, Deng Xiaoping, actually pretty much banned debate on the Cultural Revolution by setting a total, an official narrative on it, the policy of thorough negation, which is interesting because before that, there was some debate, a lot of debate in the party as to what this meant. But you would think that they would, they would allow for debate on such a event instead of setting an established narrative, which is the established narrative in China is that it was a complete and utter disaster and the worst thing to ever happen to the party. And in some sense, that's true. But that's the thing. It's, in a, it's a non-dialectical look at it because there's a lot of uh, quite like very fascinating experiments in worker self-management that occurred in that revolution. That It was the closest, really, any project has gotten to communism, whether it's a viewed as a good thing or a bad thing or whatever really was. And it was an experiment in like work power to the people. It's like liber it went farther than all the libertarian socialist projects that people look favorably uh, towards, at least on a mass scale in a country like China, you know, this is not a small local, whatever, this is a whole country. <laughs> it's a, a massive project. Um, but yeah, no, the Maoists, uh, that's the thing. I, the, you think that by learning about this, I'll become a Maoist. I remember I, I there's a, a Maoist YouTuber I talk to frequently, and when I told him what I was doing, he was like, he was excited. I'm going to convert to MLM. He he, he was like MLM one time went 
Actually, I came out more skeptical of Maoism. Okay, that's fascinating. Like I, uh, I really don't have a basis in the conversation. You know this, but you're basically providing this sort of interpretive uh, framework or kind of attitude, kind of approach that I demand from anyone I'm going to like listen to talking about these kinds of issues. Like I obviously I will check out anybody to kind of hear what people say about things, but I just like, I, it's more than taking people with a grain of salt. Like if somebody's just, they've got like, they're doing apologetics and that's their plan. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't like it. And if someone's doing the opposite, they're just doing polemics. I just don't like it. You know, I just, I look for, I, I, maybe it is this bourgeois ideal of impartiality, which is stupid and, and not good when there's I, have, like, I, I totally upheld, I uphold that though. I think you do, hold, you do uphold it. Yeah. Like for, I think one should separate their theoretic theory and politics. That's a big part of my thing. Like you need to separate how you diagnose society and how you, what is your politics you're promoting? Like when you're doing, when are you doing propaganda and when are you doing analysis and education and I think the best thinkers kind of do that like someone like uh, Marx for example in capital is not the communist manifesto no completely no, 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 different no. and uh, Weber is another thing I think Max Weber is another one of my favorite thinkers who I think is okay. embodies this kind of type of thinker who is able to look at reality uh, and almost detach his own politics from it uh, even though you know, obviously ideology will bleed into things like you can't really escape ideology entirely, but you can almost like Weber, like Weber comes to a lot of the same conclusions as Marxism in many ways. What Weber's project is, is Marxism without class. That's the irony of Weber. And, and, and he comes to all these conclusions in his analysis that aren't so good if you're trying to look at capitalism objectively. Or okay. liberalism or a modernity, objectively. I'm not, I'm not really, I have like Weber and Habermas and Durkheim and a couple other like sociologists and anthropologist type thinkers who are fundamental to really having a basis in the field are people that I haven't even had a genuine first encounter with. And so it's like, I really appreciate hearing about Weber and the fact that you, one, appreciate him, but also that think that this is a serious issue with them. And so that's fascinating. It's another video I plan to make because uh, kind of, I want to apply a work by Weber called Politics as a Vocation. It's a lecture from a book you can find online called The Vocation Lectures. It's two big lectures that are, are actually so detailed and include so much of his life's analysis that they were made into books. Um, and uh, politics is a vocation. I recommend that a lot because not only is that just, it's filled with so much interesting insight, but it's also um, it provides a guideline or a suggestion about separating about sep separating like mass political leaders, bureaucrats, and what those like people who want to be involved in a politics attributes they should have and the thing is Weber is not a communist but Weber has a framework of this idea of the ethic of responsibility and ethic of conviction conviction would be like ideology your what are your genuine beliefs and right. responsibility is kind of like being able to detach your beliefs from 
um, your your uh, your 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 analyzing reality, because or else it's like blind, you know, teaching the blind. Right, right, right. And I think that's actually useful for leftists. Uh, I won't get into why, because this is like a huge thing that I'm building a whole theory off of about myth and and politics and whatnot. But I do. Okay, I'll give you an example. A lot of Marxists uncritically. You know, because Marxism posits itself as a science. And I think right. at its best, right. Marxism is, can, can be a science. Like someone like Althusser is someone who embodies the ideal of using Marxism as a science. Uh, or Nikos Polantis, those very like systematic Marxists. Now, Marxism as a politics is absolutely not a science. One should separate that. So when you have people walk around, they say Marxism-Leninism is a science. Marxism-Leninism-Maoism is a science. That is extremely dangerous thing to believe. Yeah. When yeah. you believe that kind of thing, you, you end up actually like imposing ideals onto reality. And this is yes. not just some like phenomenon of inter- people on the internet. I mean, in the Soviet Union, no, you had um, agricultural policy that was informed by absolute crackpots. Like, I don't know if you've heard of Lyshenkoism. This was uh, this, this guy named Lyshenko was this. Was, it, was this biology, right? There's the biology stuff too with another Bolshevik guy named Bogdanov, oh, okay. but that's another route hole. Okay, but uh, there's, um, anyway, like with, there's this idea that you could apply historical, like dialectical materialism to the to cultivation of bread, <laughs> like oh, agriculture. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this yeah. was some, and it was absolute nuts, like just totally insane. Like after Stalin died, this guy was immediately purged, Leshenko. Uh, um, because a lot of so many people thought he was insane, but the thing is, is Stalin and the people closest to Stalin, who controlled the Central Committee, liked him, and they bought their own bullshit. The thing about Stalin, he's not a cynical Machiavellian like he does. Well, he's Machiavellian, but he, it's not like he doesn't didn't believe in communism. He believed so strongly in Marxism, Leninism, and science that he was he thought that this was like on par with Darwin's theory of evolution. And you it's, realize it's, how like dangerous that is. Like this, all, right. it's, it's part of a broader thing called proletarian science. I don't know if you've heard of like this term being thrown around. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. To yeah. some degree. So yeah, I think so. Yeah, I know a little bit about it, and it's it's basically like, oh well, so far we have bourgeois science. What we need is our own science, right? And this is why Lenin wrote to yeah. uh, to one of the other Bolsheviks like. Like you're sick, dude. Don't. I, I, who was it that he wrote this to? It was. It wasn't even one of the Bolsheviks, was it? But it Are you was one about of the. Lenin? Yeah, Lenin wrote this letter saying, "Yeah, don't go to the 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 proletarian doctors or the." Oh, is this from uh, better, fewer, but better? Maybe. I forget like, where I'm getting it from, the, but it's like it one was of it late things. Lenin? Like, was it when he was I, in the? Was it when the Soviet Union was established? Or was the it the guy who's. <sighs> Man, I'm forgetting the name of the guy who was really he he was involved in the 1905 revolution, and then he was he was like one of the main leaders of it, and then he didn't really Plekhanov. Yeah, wait, no, 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 not Plekhanov. Uh, other guy, literature guy. He did he wrote literature and uh, he hosted a lot of parties, and they kind of tolerated him because he wasn't exactly on board with everything the Bolsheviks were doing. and he was, he was a respected figure in the movement. And like he, a, was, he was sick and Lenin wrote him and said, don't get help from any of these fucking, these fucking guys thinking that they're, you know, that they huh. renounce the bourgeois medicine or whatever. 
And the point was they like, do that already. Bourgeois medicine's based. Uh, yeah. I, huh. Interesting. Yeah, I'll find I'll find it for you. I think it might have. I I don't know where I saw it, but this is the problem with giving everything a first reading and then not going back over and doing the second reading, right? Like that's, yeah, I'm absolutely. in the space of when it comes to this this kind of history stuff. I'm in the first readings. I'm in the skimming stage. Like most of that skimming was done while doing firewood work and Amazon work in the last three oh, years. Yeah. Right. Just listening. So it's like mm-hmm. it blends together when it's all like this history shit and a bunch of names. And so that's why I've got to come sure. over and really give everything the second go. But I think it could have been Kolakowski and his three volumes on main of Marxism. Kolakowski. Oh, okay. I was going to say Karl Kotsky. I was like, uh, no, no, no. What? <laughs> no, no, no. No. Yeah, and no. So, it's absolutely dangerous to not separate uh, one's political ideology from uh, their descriptive, their diagnosis, and then their descriptive analysis of society. And when someone who says, like, you can't really separate that, yes, you can. Okay, like, that's the, like, when any competent, like, person does. Uh, and that's the, the danger is, like, Marxism is like an emancipatory ideology that posits to be for the working class. And because of this, almost like, you know, it's supposed to be amoral, moral sounding virtuousness to it. People think that in itself it, that can stand for like analyzing reality uh, where it, the, the whole point of Marx, right? Like Marx, even in German ideology, literally says that the whole point of like historical of, of his framework of history is not to become something that people copy and paste. It's a guideline for actually studying reality, which itself could be changed. Like the thing about Marxism is supposed to be falsified. Right, right, right. It, it has to be open to like reinterpretations and changes. It's not, so this idea of anti-revisionism, that's another thing that I don't even want to get into, but like the, you can get into this position where people don't separate that descriptive element of Marxism from the politics, because why is politics simple? Politics is by its nature simple. Because you can't, most people don't have the time or energy to like read all these damn books, like to understand like the complexities of reality. Reality is complex. Phenomenon are complex. We don't have the answers, but politics for it to work has to act like it has the answers or at least part of it, right? People don't right. like uncertainty and politics is mass. It includes rhetoric, it includes propaganda, it includes grand narratives. Any effective politics has that. Now, one can't conflate those that simplified version of the politics, the ideology, the simplified version of the ideology, with the um, more complex realities that you would diagnose and analyze. If you don't do that, then you end up with a very narrow, simple, terrible, backward understanding of reality. That's coping mechanisms, which um, I mean certainly uh, exists in the contemporary left, but. Um, I think I know. I think it's not like there are many. I think many of the best like socialist leaders and thinkers were able to actually delineate a little bit, right? Even if some were more dogmatic than others. I mean, even Mao. I think Mao was quite ideological, but even Mao has um, many points. If one reads on practice and contradiction, uh, which you can find that book as intro from Zizek. That's really interesting, right, right, right. and it's a collection of Mao's writings. One of which includes right. on practice and contradiction. But there's one part, uh, he has a writing in there called Dealing with uh, Contradictions Among the People or something like that. Right. Where he says a bunch of, he, in, that, in that one, he's actually much more nuanced. He says the question between socialism and capitalism has not been settled. 
And he thinks that socialism, communism, is not inevitable, and rather that probable defeat is actually the more likely outcome. And yeah. like, and that that's like a really sobering way to look at things. Well, yeah, right? it's it's it also it also it's kind of one of my big problems with that uh, like this this approach that says, yeah, well, we are here to demand the impossible and we're basically fighting a losing war. And that's why we have unrealistic slogans. And that's why we have, you know, the kinds of, uh, almost everything we do serves the enemy in a, in a, in a pretty obvious way. And it's like, that's, that's a big problem, but obviously he's in a different situation. He's in a different situation, but obviously Mao's writings were inherited like a little scripture during the sixties. Right. And so it did, the way that that was appropriated uh, by student radicals in the 60s and 70s is about, I mean. Well, that was from the, that's the cool too. That's just right? the red little red book, which is not like as a, that's a, that's like a polemical, like prop, it's propaganda. Like, see, that's what I mean. So the linear theory and propaganda. The little red book is propaganda. That's made to be accessible to anybody. And it's not good theory. That's one should not be treat that as like great theory, but. Uh, something like on practice and contradiction, I think is is pretty good theory. Interesting. Even okay. if I have like I have many gripes with Mao, actually, he's a thinker, but I think he's more nuanced than people would like. And I think a lot of even Maoists don't really get that in Mao. Like Mao is was more thought of communism as like an experiment. And there's a very interesting. So it's very interesting in that scene called that book I mentioned about the cultural revolution, revolutionary culture from Alessandro Russo. He mentions that um, Mao had a statement in a debate with, um, in, in a talk with party members that he thought the cultural revolution would almost certainly fail. And the point of it was actually to experiment, was to see, now you can't go on, like you said, you can't just say that, like, that doesn't work propagandistically. You tell people, oh, we're going to fucking give it a go. <laughs> the communism is one big experiment. No, you can't say that. You need, and also maybe it shouldn't be that. Actually, maybe we should, we should not. We should actually like maybe derive like what we were trying to build beforehand, or maybe. But these experiments are useful. If Mao didn't do the Cultural Revolution, we wouldn't. I don't think we wouldn't have as much insight into like what actual a mass democratic politics outside of the state looks like. I think Maoism is which anarchists should be sitting too. Because there, I think like anarchist vision, they always oppose the Stalinists. Stalinists, yeah, we know that's a failed model. But the anarchists will say, okay, yeah, radical decentralization, power to the people outside of the state, yeah. People are capable of being absolute monsters amongst each other, like just as authoritarian as a state. They will act like right, just right, a bunch right. of mini states oppressing each other. Yeah, yeah. And I that's mean, the and cultural that revolution me, was that. It's absolute. That, that that idea is basically why I go, you know, I would rather, I would rather it's Biden versus Trump until the sun engulfs us or we all die from climate change than deal with the fucking people who represent politics today in the radical spheres actually having the, the levers over all economic life dictating where I work, when I work, if I can work, if I do or do not deserve to have food and shelter, because that's the main thing about the deplatforming arguments. It's like the, the, you know, channels like the surfs or Vosh or thought slime, like they've made themselves basically like surrogates to this 
you know, they, they reify this like idea that the, the question we should be having is whether a person deserves to be able to appear in public, the, the whether a person deserves to have a house over their head. Like, well, did they really say something that deserves to, to get them like depersoned? Let's have a real conversation about it. And it's like you're starting at the wrong point. The, the, the only point to really be at it, especially in terms of propaganda, is to tell people, hey, you do you. The goal is to give you more time and energy and resources so you can go do you, right? We're not coming for your fucking family. We're not coming for your, we're not trying to, oh, if you disagree with us, you're not going to get fired. Like it's not that it's not, the, it, the goal is to not leave you homeless and jobless. It's to make it so you don't have to work as much. And if, if you're trying to sell people on something where it's like, no, you just have to trust us. And also we're the experts who know what's correct. And you need to actually toe this line, which involves a hundred checkboxes of moving goalposts where you have to say all the right things on all of them or else we're coming for you. Well then yeah, the conservatives will win and they'll consider they'll continue to win for as long as that is the case. Right. So it's like, this is, I'm, I'm really happy to see that where your thought is taking you is a place that is like, you're bringing reason and, and, and this, this framework between, you know, really developing propaganda versus theory versus a, a myth and the role of myth in propaganda, you know, but not confusing that for theory. Mm -hmm. This is essential. And it's a thread that's basically been lost, um, and I think it is a, it's a thread that a lot of people took for granted. They knew the distinction at one point. And so it's kind of like, you're like, oh yeah, by the way, everybody, you might've missed the memo. There's a difference between these things. And you know, it's the, the fascinating thing, the, the problem, and this is where I think I've been grappling with a lot and we'll be grappling with a lot more because there's a bunch of thinkers who uh, I want to get very deep into. One guy called Ernst Cassier, um, has writes about the, Okay, as an essay called the essay on man and one called the myth of the states but i, I won't get into that because i don't know his work well enough to speak on it but someone i've been curious about like the spear uh but the distinction between myth, like propaganda as you were mentioning the propaganda uh rhetoric i think rhetoric and propaganda are among the same myth is just a merely like i use that term interchangeably with a grand narrative because a myth can be like true you know what I mean? When you say, uh, make America great again, is that entirely a false? I mean, it, like, it's so vague that it, it can, can, it points to so many different things, but like America was much more prosperous before. That is a fact. Like the post-war era, right? People were doing better. Right. You know, Maybe not every section of society, but it's, this is like, it's a grand myth. Those work in politics or the idea that, okay, great example of a myth in Marxism the idea that history is progressive. You know, too many, far too many people uh, try to have these critiques of Marxism where they say, oh, Marx is always so wrong. Of course, history isn't progressive. It's not linear. Hegel and Marx are, you know, this is obviously... I have a hard time believing Marx was that stupid to think that history was completely forward because he obviously was aware of the Dark Ages. You know, like how there's the, the ancient Greeks and you have the medieval dark ages you have but at the same time you also have like the islamic empire where you have producing thinkers like ibn khaldun and at the time in the um uh, arab world there was actually far more like there was the enlightenment was being occurring there you know almost before europe then they regress after right and one could argue when that was maybe ottoman empire 
But the point is, history is it's not like just like this linear thing. We know that. But as a grand myth, this idea of history being forward, of progress, it is a great political myth because then you feel like you're fighting for something. Because how do you replace religion? This is a question all the great thinkers like Nietzsche, Weber were trying to ask. With the death of God, what do you fill that with? You need to right. fill a void of meaning. And the fact is, is the left needs to do that too. That's the, 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 like they need to have a project of that too. But how do you have a better project that actually raises people up and improves people's lives, not to dumb them down, which is, I think, religion dumbs people down or for the I mean, most, most part, right? Right. And it, uh, it it strike- nationalism now I think dumbs people right down, but back nationalism had a very progressive role, at least in 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 the like the seventeen sixteen to eighteen hundreds had a very progressive role in kind of overcoming feudalism. It was a way to get out of this stupid life of like peasants living in their little villages, all not coordinated, but this idea of a national people all together united under one. This is a very progressive at its time, but now you talk about nationalism in a, in a country like America that. You know, it's not, it's not really, it's actually kind of probably dulling a con- other kind of consciousness that could be fostered that's maybe better. Um, right. The point is, is these grand myths are kind of in- inevitable in politics. Uh, and one needs to like pick and choose that. But at the same time, you can't be, if you're trying to be someone who's a critical thinker, which not everyone has the time and place to do. That's the thing, the time. I don't think it's a matter of like intelligence, like you're born with. It's a matter of time. Like, that's really, I think, what it amounts to, like time energy, which you know better than anybody I know. You wrote a whole book on time energy. Like, it's just, it's hard to think about these things. It's hard to do activism. It's hard to have, like make a living and do all these things. You think like you go tell people like the complexities of reality and be like, okay, well, um, here, uh, make it with what you will. This will probably fail. Like nobody, when in doubt, people have shit to do, so they're gonna gravitate to a kind of more simple narrative that will um, escape them from the chaos of reality and who could blame them that's not even the masses being stupid that's actually in that material context almost like uh, evolutionarily smart to, to save their energy by choosing grand narratives over the complexity which could put you in an abyss right so you're making me realize that I actually like okay you asked me like about you asked you asked me about the the uh, I will let you finish here in a second, but you asked me about what has been talked about on stream, and I want to tie this into sure. one of the guests one of the guests today who now I would love for you to actually meet him, um, and this this uh, there's something really cool potentially here if 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 uh, if we make that happen, but I'll save that for to let you finish. Yeah, so, you know, you need these, okay, you need grand narratives, you need, um, which will include some kind of like a little bit of a myth. Now, if one is trying to, number one, also teach people to like the realities of the world as well, these things aren't totally separate, but one needs to separate them a bit because you can't just take the propaganda as like that, the sim- which is so propaganda is simplified versions of the reality. I don't think I don't like it because like I don't think we should be we're not, we're not here telling like lies like the right often has to sometimes relies on a mixture of truth and lies actually usually the best propaganda has some truth to it but like you know there's plenty of uh, neoliberal lies about like austerity for example it's just a straight up lie like the idea of a deficit um, which you know I've, I've made videos debunking but 
okay, that's it's a put this puts us on an interesting terrain because if you can't separate the simplified versions of reality which serve a political purpose and explaining reality as such, which requires more complexity, more nuance, and this is even more important if you're actually in charge of fucking building a society, which that includes like the party, the politicians, and the intellect intelligentsia who are really there to number one advise like who are to educate people but also to advise leaders that's who the leaders get their who educates the leaders right and if one takes the propaganda to be that reality you put you get in a very dangerous situation that not only leftists i mentioned stalin you know in the in the uh proletarian science as an example of this plaguing the left uh and also have you i don't know if you've read about like the way the soviet union treated mental illness but it's pretty fascinating and terrifying but they actually like if you were they they treated like because marxism leninism was considered a science if you like didn't subscribe to it you were you able to be diagnosed as insane because you didn't believe in reality what no i yeah. actually i've read a lot of critiques i didn't know about that one yeah it's it's pretty like this was this was an excuse though really like politically to like put more people in the camps so that they could like produce more like gulag labor to help them in the war effort and whatnot but like what i mean is like I'm sure there's people who actually did believe that. Like a lot of people believe that. And if one, one looks at a historian like G.R.H. Getty's Road to Terror, uh, who looks extensively over like the memos and transcripts of like people in the party, including Stalin, Stalin seemed to actually believe a lot of his bullshit, his own myths. Now this plagues conservative and liberal governments too, and fascist governments. Of course, this is, of course. This is the interesting thing. We know this- like, okay, Nazism is a bit of an obvious example. Like, them invading Russia was probably was definitely more ideological than it was looking at the reality because the reality is you know Russia's just by history with like Napoleon and so many examples how hard of a country that is to invade. So even if but they had this actual they believed in the idea of the Germans destined to occupy the living space of of uh, Slavs, which so they made a very uncalculable like it was a very bad decision to invade the Soviet Union if they, they would have preserved themselves far longer. Um, so that's an example of them believing their own myths. In the neoliberal period, I can't help but think a lot of the people nowadays who run society, they're not these people who are like, haha, we're not telling the public what we really believe. No, a lot of them believe in their in in like the, the bullshit. Not all of them, but okay, let's look at neoliberalism. Someone like Milton Friedman, who's a, who's in charge of of, of who's kind of responsible for like the synthesization of neoliberalism as we know it, at least in America, the American version and the British version, Western and Anglo version. Um, he doesn't really care a lot about deficits. He, and he, all his policies he uh, cares for, like cutting taxes, privatization of all these industries actually lead to more deficits, but they lead to what his real goal is. And that is a marketization of all of society. Now the neoliberals then start talking about balancing the budget. And why do they talk about that? Milton Friedman talks about that too in his interviews, not so much in his theory. Why? Because you need a justification for that policy. You need to justify how you, you cut spending and all this, to cut taxes. You need to, sorry, um, privatize all these industries, cut social programs. You need a myth to justify that. And that myth is the deficit. Now, they, I don't think Reagan believed it. Uh, I, I don't think Reagan really was thinking about a lot of things, much of anything, but I don't think Milton Friedman believed it. I don't think a lot of leaders believed it, but it got to a point where like neoliberal ideology got so pervasive 
that you have Bill Clinton in the 1999 balance the budget in America for the first time in like over 100 years. Balance the budget. You know what happened right after that year? The dot-com bubble. It was actually bad for capitalism to run off surplus because then you have less money there for people to actually, in 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 the private sphere, for people to go buy up all the stocks that are falling down. It's just, this is just like what is a, a surplus economically in the government is a private deficit. The more money you have being deleted out of the economy, the less you have there, you'll have more likely weakness in the economy for a crash. This is actually bad for capitalism. Balancing the budget is bad for capitalism, I repeat, right? So you have, I think, Clinton, Bill Clinton and his economic advisors believe the myth that was originally just there to be a justification for neoliberal policy, structural adjustment policy. And then it almost backfires. This is what, what I mean. It's like this myth, this dichotomy between the myth, the, myth, the myth, the political rhetoric, and the empirical reality plagues even like all people on the spectrum. That's the fascinating thing about it. And I think like it has, I don't want to overstate its importance in like the shifting of history, but I think it is a factor that is certainly overlooked. Well, the neoconservatives were basically like very aware of this distinction and they used it, right? They, they, they're not Christians. Which, which kind of neoconservatives? I'm talking like James Burnham and, uh, uh, I mean. Leo Strauss for the record was not a neocon. I want to say that. Um, for real? Yep. I mean, he's, he's he's definitely generally he's, he in, he, in, he has he had students who became neocons like Bill Crystal. But I mean like and, uh, I mean Balan Bloom and people like that. I mean no, but I mean Crystal and I mean Whitaker Chambers and I mean sure, James yeah. Burnham. That and, that would be fair. But Strauss himself right. is actually uh, I I actually really like no. Strauss as a no. thinker. That's another okay. thing. I think that he's written some fucking amazing shit that needs to be taken very seriously. Just like, mm-hmm. you know, he's definitely one of those real thinkers in that I'll get called a red brown for thinking that we should read him. But, you know, whatever. The, the, Strauss is very important. I think we should read Schmidt, who's Schmidt and became a Nazi. He has yeah, very valuable thing. Many leftists read Schmidt. That's not even, uncon- that's not even controversial in like an academic no, world. No, it's not. It's, it's more controversial to read world. Heidegger than it is Schmidt, actually, which is hilarious. Right, it's more controversial to read Heidegger than Schmidt because that's so Schmidt's, weird. Schmidt's just like it's like reading Machiavelli. It's like, yeah, of course, I'm reading the devil. But like Heidegger's mm. like, no, I'm just talking about being, and they're like, hmm, sneaky, you know. So it's like there's the, that's going yeah. on, and combined with the fact that people are like, hmm, Schmidt wrote a little tiny book, I can read that, and they're like, being in time, fuck off. He's a nut. <laughs> I don't care, you know. So you know, this is part of the issue, but. No, this I have a quote from uh, uh, "For They Know Not What They Do" that I think is really good at uh, kind of when you keep bringing up this point about how Stalin wasn't cynical; he did believe this stuff. Now, the the neocons I just listed, I do think they're cynical in in the extreme, and that they they are myth makers. That Christian Christian uh, the, the family Christian God country kind of Americanism that they really doubled down on. Behind, with freedom as its master signifier, behind that right. is a basic Bolshevik form of organizing that they took from Trotskyism because they were all former Trotskyists. Well, Whitaker Chambers was a Stalinist, but that doesn't matter. 
Yeah, I, I don't know how like, much I buy that theory, but that's another another like debate. I do think there is a lineage. There, there is like a there's a certain continuity of the imperialist or expansionist element of Trotskyism and like the neocon ideology. If there is one, but that's another I, whole. What I'm talking about is I'm talking dude. about discipline and cadres and strict. Yeah, uh, militarism. That's what I mean. Like the militaristic element yeah. of Trotskyism, and like that's an expansionist right. militaristic, right? Right, exactly, and and this aggressive, this aggressive, uh, the 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 offense that is defensive, right? Like this idea that they have to be this way, like it's the and that they're just realists and they're just being scientific, and they they inherit a a set, a set of principles that make sense. Like you're a Trotskyist, you you want to be a realist, you want to be scientific. Trotsky is win. not a realist. You want to be. I just want to say. Trotsky supported a lot of the policies of Stalin. You, you're, you're, no, 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 no. Don't put words in my mouth. No, no, no. Don't put words in my mouth. Oh, yeah, okay. I said they want to be realists. You'll never oh, meet a Trotskyist to. who doesn't want to be a realist. Sure. Okay. But That's, you could say yeah. that about Marxists in general. Though, right? Yeah, I think it's true. Like the, and, and as far as whether they, they are or not, now I want to have a conversation, host a conversation between you and Swolitariat. I think that would be a lot of fun. But, the the quote yeah, I, I like Swolterit, so that'd be fun. Yeah, I'd he likes to you too, but he likes you too. But he's in. You're both Canadian, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you have a lot of common, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think we're uh, both in Ontario as well. But basically, multiple times throughout, for they know not what they do. Which right now we're reading it cover to cover. Mikey's yeah, teaching I've it. Seen. I have it saved in my playlist. Plan to listen there, to it. There are several points in which Heide- uh, Heidegger, where, where Slavoj brings up the the person who believes himself to be a direct extension of the big other, right? And he uses, for the first time, he, he says, when Adorno claims in Minima Moralia that to say we and to mean I is one of the persistent diseases, he thereby mm. provides a succinct formula of the totalitarian position of presenting one's contingent subjective opinion as the impersonal objective collective truth that this is of designating oneself as a direct a direct instrument of the big other historical necessity right so yeah so this is this is in uh for they know not what they do multiple times he brings up this just word search right. instrument word search word search instrument and read those passages it's it's powerful yeah i i really like that i'm definitely i'm gonna check out that book i wanted to kind of because i haven't checked out only checked out sublime object of ideology um, but not not for for they know what not what they do but i saw you you were covering it with uh with mikey so i'm yeah. just gonna go for sure listen to that well, so we have like a, a whole lecture course that's developing on the on the site, and uh, when uh, we people are able to join and take it on demand, but we have a cohort that's working through it chapter by chapter every other week. And uh, the other the other point, you might be familiar with this one because you've probably heard his critique of Buddhism. He says, insofar mm-hmm. as subjectivity as such is hysterical, insofar as it emerges through questioning the interpolating call of the other. This is a perfect description of a perverse desubjectivization. He's referring to something he had just talked about regarding Zen, right? 
right. uh, using Zen for violence. You know the, the example. He says the subject avoids his constitutive splitting by positing himself directly as the instrument of the other's will. Right. So this is kind of a theme that he kind of keeps coming back on because at the time that he's writing this, he's already, you know, he the, the last major work he wrote was Sublime Object of Ideology. And now he, he's not writing this. He's actually giving a series of lectures and uh, he's giving them in Slovenia at, the, at, 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 at a time of leftist failure and the rise of a new nationalist populist front. And so mm. this, is, this is like thinking about the failures of Stalinism combined with thinking about what's going on on the side of these nationalist populists. And, and he's just trying to think, how does ideology work here? Except that that's kind of in the background. It's kind of like this background thread that unifies the whole thing. I mean, the, 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 the subtitle of the text is enjoyment as a political factor. But if you read chapter to chapter, that's almost never there. It is the, the subtending sort of vanishing mediator throughout the text. But the real thing that he's doing throughout the text is he's Lacanianizing Hegel, showing why Hegel was actually Lacanian, showing why he's not a idealist, showing why material reality changes the notion, showing how Derrida, Foucault, Wittgenstein, like all these people get him wrong. And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's based because when you read Sublime Object of Ideology, it's like this is how he's using Lacan to think about ideology. It's in For They Know Not What They Do where it's like here's me doing the exact same thing but now I'm doing it with Hegel. And he says uh, – just to make my plug for it, let me. He said he says right here at the at the in the forward. This he wrote this forward like thirty years later. He says, "I always considered, for they know not what they do, a more substantial achievement than subject of uh, subject, sublime object of ideology." He says it is a book of theoretical work, in contrast to the succession of anecdotes and cinema references in the sublime object. For me, the reaction of individual readers to it was a kind of test. Those who said, I was disappointed by it, finding it a little bit boring after all the firecrackers of Sublime Object, obviously missed the crucial argument of both works. Even today, my attitude is, those who do not want to talk about for they know not what they do should remain silent about the Sublime Object. That's a banger. Where, where does he say that again? This is the first paragraph from the forward to from the new forward to the second edition. Of yeah, uh, yeah I, I when I listened to that whole um, like four hour thing you did with Mikey on Sublime Object, I think it was not really about Sublime Object, it was just about Zizek's theory of ideology in general. True. Um, yeah. But uh, I he recommended this interview with like, I think conversations with Zizek, the interview book. I got that very excited to dig into that. Cause he's saying like, that's actually the best way to where he like explains his, all his ideas very much more um, clearly. It's yeah. And that's, you know, yeah, cause the, I, I've, I've, I also have a fascination, fascination with Zizek, but I would, I would not say I know his work like at all any close to like how, uh mikey or you really uh know them know it because like you know like i said i've only read jack's oh well his main theoretical work is sublime object of ideology and his other books like i've read a bunch of his other books but they're not really you know theory books like his thief in broad daylight it's like polemics essays or heaven and disorder the new one the pandemic like that's not really him doing theory it's like him doing journalism 
yeah, yeah. Same with in defense of lost causes. Uh, there's just a lot. It's it's there's there's two modes: journalism mode and cinema talking about pop culture mode. And that's where he's kind of he said he calls those the casualties of war of him actually working out his theory, testing them on various cultural objects or situations. But the main works are Sublime Object of Ideology, For They Don't Know What They Do, Plague of Fantasies. Uh, Plague the of most fantasies. important, yeah. the most important one being uh, uh, Less Than Nothing. Uh, but those are basically. I, I know I'm missing one. Uh, it's Sex in the Failed Absolute, I think. But those are basically the main theoretical works. And then he wrote sixty other books that aren't the main theoretical works. And so it's really easy to like pick several books of his off the shelf, be reading them and being like, this is a bunch of cool, disjointed, aphoristic mm -hmm. sort of musings on various things that I either agree with or disagree with, find simulating or not. But none of that is the pure theory. And as far as like the most concentrated and condensed treatment of theory, especially dealing with the most complicated part of it being Hegel, it, the, the, before they don't know what they do is, really special because it's where he he it's his real mic drop as far as coming out and saying everybody got Hegel wrong and here's why right so I mean that's that's a it's a historic moment because it's it's there are obviously a lot of professors who go oh he just does cinema stuff we don't take him seriously but there's also a right. lot of selective silence in academia from specific circles coming from people who they realized that they had been kind of put in their place by him and they're jealous and they're angry, you know? Certainly. So, I think, well, ego is a factor in academic thinking way more than people would admit it is certainly. Cause I mean, I think his ascendancy to the public is very like, it evokes a lot of jealousy among other academics. That's for sure. Someone mentioned in, um, this like chad they said uh parallax view is a oh, huge the theoretical view. work is that like are you referring you. to the movie thank you no 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 the the actual the parallax view is one of his other major works yeah does that so have anything just, to do with the movie because i know mark fisher liked that movie a lot i don't know anything about the movie i think that no i haven't parallax seen it view, i haven't seen it but parallax i know i remember in about, capitalist realism and i think chapter eight is one about there's no central figure. Yeah, he mentions parallax view. He's very thinks it's a it, it illustrates his point. Really? So there's a movie about it. Well, because he's also a Zizekian, so it's like you know Fisher's in a very way, it's big way influenced by Slavoj. So sure. it's like I want to know, I want to know that too now. But uh, no, it has to deal with Kojin Karatani's notion of parallax. Okay, and so basically. I think the basic idea is like it's about a change in perspective and retroversive quilting that changes how you understand something. And, and so that's the idea of a parallax view, I think. But I don't really know what's achieved in that text yet because I'm also a baby Zizekian. I'm the babyest of the baby Zizekian. I mean, the young Zizekians, it's like there's like this hierarchy and <laughs> it's like Mike – it's like it's like uh, Slavoj's teaching McGowan. McGowan's teaching Mikey. Mikey's teaching me. And – Really, I was going to be, I'm teaching Andrew and Nick, but actually they've superseded me. And now I'm just learning from all of them at this point, because I, I, there's no way I can keep up with all that and do everything else I'm doing on my own. So I just, they, they're teaching me and other people are kind of along for the ride to learn in the process of Mikey teaching me, you know? 
So right. people people assume, oh, well, you read this stuff deeply and you must be such a great Zizekian. And it's like, I am a Zizekian in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way. I'm about as I'm about as Zizekian as I am um, Heideggerian or Levinasian or Marxist, right? I'm not, I'm not like, uh, I don't have my cards out in spades. Mikey's actually like, no, I'm a Zizekian, like very definitively. And he's allowed to say that because he's writing his major work using... Baudrillard and Zizek and he has to show I really want to talk to him about that by the way because I, I only know, know I, I, know, I only know I know so when I, I used I used to be like a baby Baudrillard I wouldn't I wouldn't call myself a Zizekian at all um because that's still like I still want like I've way more to read you know what I mean I still want yeah, to sure. read a lot more Zizek to like get to that point the Baudrillards I think are read a fair amount of about so it's still also like a baby Baudrillardian maybe um, but, and I only know two people on the internet who are in the English speaking world on the internet. So there's, there's someone at the university of Western Ontario who's a prof, um, who's a Baudrillardian, but there's, a uh, on the internet, there's only two people I know who are like very well-versed on Baudrillard, more well-versed than me. Um, a lot is, is Mikey and, uh, Dave, but and by David. far the most is David from theory and philosophy. Right. David from theory and philosophy has read every single, like I remember I made a, so I made a, this is my worst video, my second video on my channel on Call of Duty and Baudrillard. This video is good politically. Baudrillard does not capture Baudrillard whatsoever. Does like, don't, if you want to watch, learn Baudrillard from that video, do not, this does not explain anything. It's like, I did not delve as deeply as I needed. Anyway, David from Theory and Philosophy, like kind of, he's a very nice guy. He kind of like, he was like, oh, it's a good video, like uh, whatever about the Gulf War part kind of right. But the idea of simulation just kind of like, like it doesn't really capture it all. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, 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 what? And anyway, he is explaining. He's like, don't don't feel bad. Like most of the people, even other big theory YouTubers, I won't name. Uh, he says like get this completely backwards. Like big ones who are big on YouTube get Baudrillard completely backwards. Don't feel no. It's, he it's, showed it's, me it's this okay way of thinking of Baudrillard that flipped that changed my whole perception. He's like. Don't forget simulacra and simulation. That one gets kind of confusing. Like if you only read that, you'll miss the real point he's making. And he recommended a perfect crime, passwords, um, intelligence of evil, seduction, um, fatal strategies. Uh, least, uh, but anyway, for bigger one is perfect crime. Okay, for getting Baudrillard. And that's that. Like, that's crazy. Maybe. I, I feel like I understand at least when it comes to like simulation, illusion, reality, like this part of Baudrillard's thinking, I feel like I grasp that very well. And that's because all thanks to David from Theory and Philosophy. Uh, but yeah, I'm very excited to talk about Baudrillard because this synthesis with Baudrillard and Zizek is something I'd be very fascinated to see. Because that is just... All right. Can't talk about the fight though. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's true. Like we're actually, I've been sworn to secrecy. I've already done too much. The The problem is the moment you start talking about this, because it's not a synthesis that he's doing. Um, it's a lot more complicated than the synthesis. But the moment we start talking about it, everyone's gears start spinning and it's like, everyone, you need to realize this has been in like a 20 year project in the making he's been writing it while working for the last five years. This shit's going to actually get birthed in the next like seven months time. And, and once it's out in the world, nothing will ever be the same. But for the time being, we're kind of sworn to secrecy. I'm not allowed to tell you the name of the book, even though I've known it for years. I designed the cover of this book like a year ago. 
And uh, I was just having fun. And he was like, no, you actually nailed it. That's exactly what I wanted. And so, but we can't talk about it. But I will say for now, for the people who are getting excited about it, just don't go and make a video essay about it. Um, just keep studying everything else. <laughs> well, there's David, some thinkers that but are David, not but easy David, to... But David has nailed it on a lot of things. And so like he is a really good resource. Um, and it's not just my like of his name. It's, it's a good name, you know, but it's, it's actually theory and philosophy is like, uh, and I, I, I can't believe I forgot about it earlier when I was talking about Brian Becker and Todd McGowan and Samuel Longcar and kind of like their predecessors, Rick Roderick, Hubert Dreyfus, David Harvey, Wes Cecil, basically philosopher, uh, professors that, that they've actually gone online and made a lot of their stuff available. Um, and there's various strengths and weaknesses between all of these thinkers, um, but mainly they're educators, right? And so the, uh, I forgot, I forgot David from Theory and Philosophy. Yeah, he's actually, I mean, the fact that he's he not hasn't covered on Zizek this. On his, on his uh, podcast from what I would have seen. Zero Zizek. No. So Never, I'd be curious how I would ever. be curious how he reads Zizek because given his Baudrillard brain, um, but I think he told he's me certainly he great. Really I, I did a podcast with David from Theory and Philosophy, which I would say is a good source for getting a lot of keep not like you know you can only cover so much in like a one hour and a half podcast, but at least when it comes to the misunderstandings surrounding simulation, illusion, and hyper reality, um those these like terms get thrown around a lot very incorrectly when discussing Baudrillard and in that podcast we clear it up and uh, I really thought it was like that's a really good like the I did on one dime radio uh what's called I think misunderstandings of Baudrillard it's called simulation and illusion yeah so that's basically the conversation that I want plastic pills to have with either David or Mikey pills yeah you mentioned one of the people who uh uh I like pills by the way I like I like plastic pills but he has some stuff on Baudrillard that's, you know, I've heard uh, he, he sources just say. Needs, it's a beef. Get it wrong. It's a beef. It's a beef that I want to see get worked out yeah, for sure because yeah. it, it's uh, it's the same kind of thing with simulation where it's like if you don't understand symbolic exchange and, and, and its relation to simulation and you can't get that distinction cleared out, then you're just not in the wheelhouse. You're not even talking the language. And so it's like that's like a fundamental is that what that was kind of was that the point that was getting cleared up between yourself and and uh david is that the exact mm -hmm. same point yeah although um yeah well are you talking about my old video like age like two years ago over two years ago well you said that you, yeah that yeah you that brought him on to point, talk about this yeah yeah because we like i talked this he really helped me understand Baudrillard, and it was like a long process by like recommending things to read the thing about Baudrillard, it's it, a lot of the reason why he's misunderstood is due to his own fault that's because he's very difficult to understand. He's very vague, and he doesn't actually explain his ideas very clearly until his later work. Like, so the mistake most people make with Baudrillard is they study either they mainly just study eighties Baudrillard, which is simulacra and simulation, uh, fatal strategies, um, that essay about the mass, um, and uh, ecstasy of communication, stuff like that, right? They don't like he's much more clear about what he means by what what is simu what is hyperreality, which is, you know, a part of the process of simulation. Hyperreality is more real than real. What is that opposed to? So if one talks about hyperreality as opposed to the real or like reality, they've already lost the plot, like for Baudrillard. 
I don't know. I don't want, it's really hard to like, I don't want to, it's so, I don't even want to summarize his ideas here because it's so difficult to explain short form. But okay, simulation is opposed to illusion, not reality for Baudrillard. Illusion is what opposes simulation. Now, reality, there's different, he's so big, he uses the term reality in all these different ways. He uses, right. he uses synonyms for hyper reality in different ways. He uses the word integral reality and non conflictual reality. And then simulate hyper reality in these like, like the same ways or integral simulation or non conflictual simulation it means the same thing. That's kind of a trick because for Baudrillard, reality is is created by simulation. You think that cave okay cavemen walked around and were like, what is real? They just were being. You know, they were just living. They weren't going. What is real? To create an idea of reality, you have to codify things into existence which is the first order of simulation. You know, when you start like painting, you start creating language symbols. Reality as we know it is usually a mixture of codifying things, simulation and illusion. How do we fill the gaps? I guess you could say um, there's all this stuff, uh, if those who know the Kantian distinction, the noumenal and the phenomenal world, right? There's things outside of our sense perception we're just not capable of like understanding. What fills that gaps, those gaps? Illusion, right? And that's actually like most of the most beautiful things in life are illusions. So this is not a pejorative sense. If someone says like Baudrillard, oh, illusion, this is, these are illusions. But Baudrillard doesn't use illusion in a negative way whatsoever. In, in Perfect Crime, he talks, he opened with talking about the radical disillusionment of the world is what is like the process of simulation. You know, is, is like as things get more hyper real, as things get more codified and more importantly for Baudrillard, is like the simulation is less reversible. So like you mentioned the, about why symbolic exchange and seduction play into su simulation. It's because for him, like the seduction is the whole process of reversibility. Right. If that makes sense. And that so, includes illusion is part of that. Like, but disillusionment is when the simulation is kind of uh, realizing everything's realized. That's why it's not opposed to the real, like simulation. It's opposed to so, illusion. So, but so, one can't look at these totally separate because all reality as we experience it includes illusion. But like, okay, I to give a tangible example, let's look at like pornography or something. Like uh, pornography, when it's super hyper real, it is, uh, it leaves less space for like actually imagining. Right. Uh, but I guess this is a kind of more like banal like example, but uh, it's, no, trying no, to, no, it's no. really hard to put it, this in terms that uh, make sense. It's also... Used to, yeah, we're used to thinking of reality as like the opposite of like simulation is fake or whatever. But simulation is actually okay. Let's look at this camera I'm using right now. This camera is capturing the reality more than my eyes would of a person in front of. Like literally, it, it's more hyper real. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Is it, it's not making up an image. It's like capturing more pixels. Right, but like, because when we see someone in front of ourselves, it's like a bunch of illusion kicks in, you know. And I, I have a whole thing where I try to apply Baudrillard to dating apps, which is a diff different thing. Because dating apps, there's a very different like dynamic that goes on where like you view someone totally objectively because you're looking at a pixelated image. Whereas when you're with someone, there's seduction, there's an element of reversibility, there's this mystique illusion that can change. One, how one sees someone it's it's much more subjective it's it's a uh, lot but, easier for the for the levinasian face 
to break through the image or illusion. And that for because because for Levinas the and I do want to switch away from Baudrillard. Like I, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about, about Levinas, that. by the way. Like I haven't so, read a single Levinas work. So, so the, as, far the as, essential, as far as essential texts of theory underground, the main three that I'm teaching in the first year and a half are Being in Time, Totality Infinity, Das Kapital. And the point of Totality and Infinity, I mean, there's. I'm not going to get into it, really. I shouldn't. But the, I mean, it's really about it's, he's trying to ground ethics, right? Like the, the, it, as it, he's trying to ground actually everything else that tries to ground reason, rationality, science, philosophy, phenomenology, psychoanalysis. He's trying to ground all of these other, you know, discourses, fields, projects in ethics as the irreducible primary experience. It's an experience that's irreducible. And it, it, that doesn't mean there's a thou shalt, uh, you know, with a bunch of prescriptions that we need that are like objective and we can get to that, like it's written into nature. He's not saying that. But he is saying that there's a thou shalt not kill sort of uh, experience at the fundamental level of basically every interaction, right? The vulnerability of the other and the other's inability to remain encapsulated and totalized into basically the boxes that we perceptually, interpretively uh, put people into. Like, so this is totalization versus infinity. The infinity of the other is what he wants to prioritize, which is to say radical singularity, radical otherness, radical difference, these things that are not cannot be encapsulated and, 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 and reduced into our little boxes. My, all of that's to say the face for him is like his, one of his most key concepts, right? And the, the face is not your face. It's not my face. It's not like what I'm looking at right now so much as it is the, the sense of human expression that gives us a glimpse of the there's something more here going on than what meets mm -hmm. the eye that slips out beyond the – because he would, he would say this is a facade, Right. Say, yeah. So this is a mask. This is we we perform masks. We learned how to look in a mirror, and you know this is like, like very in the field I'm very interested in too. If you know about Irving Goffman, no, uh, he's, he's not really. I mean, psychology. I've heard his name. Yeah, I've heard he's his name. Kinda, and stuff. He, he yeah. has this famous book called "The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life," which kind of uh, he's not the first to make this idea. There's sociologists before who say this, but like he kind of make it into a system theory in sociology it was called the the idea of um well one um like this idea that we're kind of actors in a sort of like social network and that we're we're always performing and that uh, it's not a matter of really like finding your true self and like taking right, off right. the mask it's more a matter of like how authentic the masks are and like how oh, good, authenticity yeah. is more to do with like mediation like what he calls uh behavioral management I think Slavo is big on this too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, uh, yeah, masks in different stage performances and group dynamics. It, like, that, yeah, I, psychoanalysis would say similar shit too. Like, I mean, like Lacan could definitely explain like how people performance anxieties kind of like, you know, part of that has to do with like, you know, your imaginary not coinciding with how like you might ref be reflected to somebody, right? Right. Uh, it's like a big part of anxiety. Uh, but I think like someone like Goffman f adds to like the group dynamics, the group psychology, which I think psychoanalysis is more like. I would. Uh, I would not so much on the groups. It's more like the individual. 
but it, they're definitely like they add to each other. I would say someone like to, Goffman's sociology. It does to to bring, to to I guess quilt then the the whole Levinas thing because I didn't really want to bring up that kind of work, <laughs> but just the the, 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 the idea that it's best to to make sense of it through McLuhan basically that the face is the face that we tend to think of as a face like my actual what I just slapped like that's like this it's a performance it's a facade now but it's it's a medium more importantly it's only a facade because it gets taken for the thing itself but it's a medium for expression in the same way that the internet's a medium for expression and that this platform we're using or zoom is a medium this camera's a medium everything that is a tool that mediates perception is a medium and books are a medium so Marshall McLuhan's point about the medium being the message and by the way come on that's your one thinker from Canada so it, uh, I mentioned I mentioned him in like an old video of mine if you remember meme warfare which that video has a that video by the way has a hidden message that a lot of some people get it's not so hidden it's actually I think very obvious but like it's it's a latent it's like a latent content of the video cool. in meme warfare which well, actually relates to that first thing we talked about in this discussion well kind of not first thing about the whole like a, propaganda don't be cryptic stuff. with me are we to start winking at each other? Fuck, I forgot you're a Straussian, you goddamn yeah. snake. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, esotericism, exotericism. This is the problem. This is the bind we're in. But I also feel like this conversation will go like that one where we went for like four hours or whatever. If I don't say, we need to pivot into Q&A here. So do you sure. want to say anything before, before Be the vanguard, add the restraining discipline. You know, we need the discipline. Yeah. We need a bit of authoritarianism. Show your authority on me. It's sometimes good. We need it. It's not anarchism. We just you free reign or whatever. Yeah, the know of the father. <laughs> All right, guys. Hey, uh, people in chat, assemble. Turn on your cameras. Um, I know that Andrew's being very patient because he's next in line to be interviewed, and this has pushed him very late. But um, I basically want to give everyone like 15, 20 minutes here to – Ask Tony questions before we switch things over to our keynote conversation, which is going to be uh, me talking to Andrew about the shit that he's doing, his work on therapism, which is a critique of it's it's everything. It's powerful. It's awesome. But this is still your moment, Tony. And so Andrew, the big Signorelli, Matan, right. anybody in the chat, do you have questions for Tony? Tony, what's up? That was a good. Uh, that was a good discussion. I was very, very impressed. I didn't realize like how much deep into Marxism you were, and you know, I'm I'm a fan. Uh, a question I have because I really loved how you're mentioning how, you know, even though we can't necessarily escape out of ideology or get much of our own ideological framework or presuppositions out of discourse, especially descriptive or analytic stuff when it comes to like understanding the social the world etc um and how you were saying like that it's dangerous when you don't decipher the two my question is do you see someone like uh lukash falling into that you know because i've heard he's somewhat of like a worldview marxist from people like uh daniel tut and he's very polemical and he's obviously got the book Destruction of Reason, in which he criticizes all of German philosophy for having this like irrationalism 
as a reaction of coping with the Kantian uh, Copernican revolution of philosophy that changed things forever because of the thing in itself in which we cannot reach, right? And so it's affected a lot of philosophy up until his time. So I wouldn't say I'm very equipped to answer that question because I haven't delved super deep into Lukash. Um, mm. There's a there's a book called um, Theories of Ideology by an author called Jean Jean Raymond, uh, which goes extensively over like Lukash's ideas and destruction destruction of reason is one I've looked at. But I wouldn't say like I know him well enough to really say uh, whether if if your question where you're saying that he does this thing where he doesn't distinguish the theory from right. his political goals. I think maybe one thing I could add to that I don't, I can't really give an answer, but maybe a suggest maybe like maybe there may there maybe there might be some part there that I, well he's a partisan he was part yeah. of the Hungarian Communist Party so when you're a partisan you're automatically in a position and I want to write this uh, some uh, comment someone uh, here said uh, Maiten did I used to say it yeah. Or, uh, yeah, said uh, the mask discussion forms an interesting parallel to the propaganda debate earlier the, about wearing a mask. So if you're a partisan, I mean, you kind of have to, uh, you don't have to actually. So I think if you're a good, you're an effective one, maybe you don't do this, but you're often incentivized as a partisan to have this like mask that you're, because you're always, you're kind of preaching at the same time of politics, while you're also trying to study the objective, objective world, you're trying to I would say diagnose society. Uh, the terms objective can be very obviously like problematic, but um, now when you're partisan, it's harder to do this because you have something you're supposed to live up to. You're supposed to be a partisan for the party. Right. And um, I don't know to the extent to which, how well Lukash walks this line. I mean, he certainly is treated more of a theorist than a partisan. So I think, yeah, I think the difficulty of this is more with like political figures like Lenin and Mao, because mm -hmm. at the same time, they're theorists. But they're also doing propaganda. Like when you read a book like State and Revolution, it is like an interesting good work of theory in some regard, but it obviously includes a lot of simplifications there that are intended at a mass audience. Right. Or and like what is to be done, you know? Yeah. And as you mentioned, sure. like with Marx, like the difference between capital and Risa and then like the, the manifesto, right? Mm -hmm. So Sure. Like a perfect example is the idea of class. Like when Marx says that bourgeoisie and the proletariat, in communist manifesto that's often taken so, so people criticize him they'll say it's not that it's not that simple and maybe some marxists will say we'll take that literally but i mean marx himself at the end of capital three has a part about classes that is left blank that's when he died he never really was able to develop a systematic theory of classes and then there's there's other there's other marxist theorists who came much after who i think they're more in line with that like scientific Marxism that I spoke of, like Althusser. Yeah, like Althusser, yeah, which I'm I, a big fan of. Right. A big one I'm a real fan of, and I can say I'm well-versed in his work now, is Polanzas, Nikos Polanzas, who I think does this type of Marxism very well. And he has a whole book on social classes, which I think very much like they, it helps complete what Marx leaves empty. But Polanzas provides zero value politically, mm -hmm. even though he, to understanding the world is great. His right. theories, though, are far too obscure to like be used like you don't you're not that's not gonna like bring someone to join a party it's not gonna bring someone to support communism or these are very different goals but one has to distinguish them to avoid the watering down of theory or the um i guess you could say maybe obscurantism of politics so you don't want to like have you want to like make this like walk this line where you separate them um if we're just like fellow travelers who are studying theory it's very easy 
to make this distinction. But if you're a partisan, it's quite hard, right? So it's a matter of like developing a framework for avoiding that, which, you know, I, I, I think uh, I, don't, I don't have the answer to, but someone like Weber's Politics is Vocation has a very interesting guideline for this distinction that I think has some practical use to uh, left partisans. Right. Uh, got a question from Maiden. Uh, sorry, Madden. I just didn't want Madden. to. Yeah. 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 Um, Madden. This is a question I asked earlier. Uh, and I asked just because I, I really have no information about this. And I was wondering about this uh, period. Uh, what was the cultural revolution's impact on Western and French, specifically French philosophy of the 60s, specifically surrounding the 68 revolution? So... Okay, that's a, that's a really interesting question because there's, I mean, there's the impact on French protest movement and then there's French philosophy. I think it'll be very separate because I think the impact on like the French on May 68 is kind of more obvious, right? Like people in the, the you know, one just has to like watch Jean-Luc Godard movie, like um, La Chinois to see the impact, right? Mm -hmm. Where that movie is kind of almost a little bit of a parody of French students kind of trying to yeah. like be Maoists, right? It's a, very, it's a funny movie. It's definitely really obscure. But on philosophy, um, that so Mao has, sorry, not Mao, uh, Althusser has an essay discussing Mao uh, that might be, I wouldn't say Mao changed his thoughts in any way, but there's one thinker, two thinkers I can think of particularly who the Cultural Revolution significantly, significantly impacted. And uh, one of them is very well known, Alain Badiou, of course. Alain Baidu was a Maoist. Uh, now he's like a post-Maoist, no longer really a Maoist. And uh, another guy who actually informs much of Baidu's philosophy, named uh, Sylvain Lazarus, who I had the privilege of learning about from a, a guy named Assad Haider, who's uh, very big on this thinker and big on Baidu uh, directly, uh, call him maybe like a, even an intellectual mentor of mine, sort of. But um, Baidu and Lazarus, are thinkers that definitely were influenced by the cultural revolution. Uh, they're not, they're no longer Maoists. Someone like Lazarus, I can't say I know, I can't say I know any, like both these thinkers super well to call myself, like uh, to say whether I fully buy their theories or not. But I, um, I know like their influence on the cultural revolution and they're actually mentioned um, explicitly in terms of Baidu, implicitly in terms of Lazarus in that book I mentioned earlier, uh, Cultural Revolution, Revolutionary Culture by Alessandro Russo. That book is really like, that's the best book on the cultural revolution. I can't recommend it enough. It's just very good. But if one doesn't have like a baseline of the chronology of the cultural revolution, it might not make sense. But um, th there's this idea, okay, of um, politics at like, clearly the Bolshevik uh, mode that was uh, like this idea of a vanguard party has clear limitations of kind of becoming a bureaucracy and you know we, we know this all too well is a problem right what is the politics that comes after so you have anarchism which is a rejection of the party state um alan Baidu in an essay called the uh, well it's in a book called communist hypothesis and it's an essay called Commun uh, the cultural revolution the last revolution he thinks the cultural revolution formed actually like a distinct form of politics like that it was an experiment, but actually poses more questions than answers because it obviously failed and it cannibalized itself. But it was an event, capital event for Baju. That's another theory of his. But he, uh, 
thought that this represented like an attempt at making having politics at a distance from a state. So not like anti-state politics per se, like your anarchism or automatism, like, you know, the left Marxism. And it's also not at all, not, not only not Stalinist, it's not even really Leninist. The Cultural Revolution was like a break from this entire mode because it was an attempt to actually have people build organizations by themselves and radically challenge the party themselves. And because um, whether you agree, I think the question, there's just, it remains to be really like figured out what this event really meant. I think there's still more to be, there's more people who need to really study it. Um, my, I think it poses more problems than it does any sort of answers why I'm not a Maoist. But yeah, it's certainly influenced by Jew. I mean, by Jew, by Jew built his, by Jew is not a Stalinist ML, like he gets associated with these categories a lot. By Jew is radically critical of like status politics. And he's also critical of like anarchist politics. And the cultural revolution was a big part of that for him because he saw the cultural revolution as, okay, this is an attempt to challenge like what was clearly ossified. He thought the revolutionary sequence of the, Bolshevik experiment had saturated. This is the terms he borrows from this guy called Lazarus, I mentioned. Because he treats like revolutions, politics is like a rare thing. It's like a sequence that um, has its and its saturation points. Because like you can say, oh, Soviet Union failed because of imperialism, all these outside traders, whatever. But ultimately, like, movements actually saturate from within. So what I mean is, if you, he uses this terminology to look at the, Baiju uses this terminology he borrows from a guy called Lazarus, who's very difficult to read. And most of his work's not even in English, it's in French, uh, but the one called Anthropology of the Name is his like work in English that a lot of people read. Um, Baiju is influenced a lot by this and he, in doing so, Kind of, he he deviates not only from like Marxism, Leninism, but from even he questions Maoism. He questions Maoism as a thing, uh, and but he he still though by Jew he might seem like in his interviews that he's still like a tanky or whatever, because he but he's not. But he, it's only because he pays what he calls fidelity to, fidelity to the event. He thinks that these all these events had revolutionary potential that should be analyzed if we are to like have any politics in the future or else what you get is you just get more of the same end of history bullshit or you get like these pathetic kind of nostalgic ontology stuff you see on the internet where people are like making mashup complicated uh, compilations of the USSR or um, focusing their entire politics on whether the USSR was good or bad you know I get this is a lot very long-winded answer to your question but like I, I don't think it is the cultural revolution was that influential in French philosophy as a whole, but those two thinkers, certainly. Dada, thank you so much for that answer. That's based as fuck, man. You, I feel like in the year's time since we last talked, by the way, everybody, Tony has been on this t channel, but when it was under a different name. And so all of that content's basically been on list, uh, disappeared. And it will be some, some of it will be sl slowly returned but the conversation we had was like a four-hour one. It was a powerful one, very stimulating, gave us a lot to think about. It was very provocative. And uh, I feel like it's what, been almost a year since that happened. And I feel like in that time, like 
like we've both leveled up in various ways, but what this thing that you're doing, this whole approach that you're bringing into the discourse here, I feel like is a really uh, educational um, and illuminating uh, intervention. And so I want, uh, I basically just want to say hats off to all the research you're doing. I, I'm proud of you. I'm excited to be your fellow traveler and that, that you are now part of Theory Underground Canon. That, that you're a referent in the discourse, if not like an interlocutor. And uh, I know that the title of this was like, oh, we're going to talk about Ukraine and Russia. Oh, and yeah. Shit. And you're so over it. You're so over it. Don't worry. I don't even – I know that you're going to say that you're so over it because I've already heard you say it so many times and I'm over hearing you say it. So at this point, all <laughs> I would say is like if you don't want to – like if you don't want to take some video essay you did on the topic and then change it up for Underground Theory Volume 1 and instead you've got some shit you're grinding on right now that you're thinking about and you've got some, some, some fresh – you know, perspective to bring to the table and that's what you would prefer to do. Do what you would prefer to do. Don't, I, I, pref, I appreciate the fact that out the door, it was no apologies. We're not going to focus on the topic that was planned. We're going to focus on what we're interested in and you've been focusing on what you're interested in and everybody's here for it. Everybody loves it and you did a face reveal on Deary Underground's fucking course site launch and I know it's 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 going to be I have like, been on, not, I have shown myself before on, on other podcasts but they're oh, very niche know. niche ones, I think oh, okay. on, uh, but like very shortly, like very sparsely. Okay. Uh, well, but I'm very I, happy I, you didn't. Uh, we can only talk about Ukraine because I don't believe I really have that much unique to say about the Russia Ukraine stuff. Uh, I'll, the I, the only way my video on that topic might deviate from some is that it's like a very structural way of approaching it, where I don't think individual agents have like any real power what i mean by that is is regardless of you th what you think of like ukrainians should have agency eastern europe joining nato there was popular support for that having agency it doesn't really like just take yourself out of that picture like what i'm not a partisan in russia america i don't think all anti-american countries are good like I don't have this kind of standpoint, like maybe someone like Roger Waters, who's kind of like a embodies like a, a tanky type of person. Like they have these kind of, uh, they're not very able to articulate the NATO's role in this because they're, they're not having like, it's not from a, it's from a moral, like good guy, good guy versus less good guy thing, as opposed to this is like a structural analysis of the way imperialist countries behave. Which is the way I I I I've I haven't seen many. I made that video only because I never saw like a YouTube like a YouTube video so far that one hand wasn't unapologetic. One it wasn't just one dimensionally like oh it's just anti Russia whatever like Putin a hundred percent is is crazy at fault or whatever. Um, but at one point who didn't make this you know Mearsheimer is famous for popularizing the re realist argument. Is everyone you know John Mearsheimer? But like they don't. He doesn't call Russia imperialist or people who use his terminology. They don't call Russia imperialist because they're still they're still like playing up like a little bit, almost like a partisan role in um, a, they still think like it's I don't want to I don't want to say too much about Mearsheimer. But what I mean is I, I think like Ru Russia is like a large part to blame. But at the same time, like, you know, there's built there, there. What they did didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, there's just the like, empirical like reality of it. You know, it's not like 
This is not just the unhinged crazy. No, this is not the, this is, this, the main thing is that it's not the Biden narrative of he's just a crazy monster who is unprovoked, who's just, just likes to crush poor Ukrainian people who are not doing anything to their own, to the people who speak Russian in the territory, whatever, like this complete black and white ization of it is just, it's, it feels very gaslighting to be constantly getting it from both sides all the time when it's like you just a couple facts and then that kind of ruins it, right? But it's really Slavoj's position on Ukraine that's been kind of uh, a big deal, I guess. And so I guess it, it makes it, – I, I, I like nuanced sauce being added and that's why I'd initially been like, if you're going to write something for the piece, that's what you should do. But – I want you to focus on what you're most interested in currently. And if mm. you're burnt out on that shit, then you're burnt out on that shit. And that's, that's all there is to it. You know? So, yeah. So, I mean, like I was, you offered the idea, like I could transform that video script into like an article. It wouldn't be very difficult. Uh, but if I could do the cultural revolution, that'd be cool. But I think that's, you're doing about the Ukraine stuff. Uh, so I, I could submit that, but the thing about the Ukraine, I just don't feel, um, I only made that video just because there's not many YouTube videos making the position I'm making, but there are people. It's not a unique position at all. Like, I don't think, and it's also the discussion of like Russia, Ukraine. It's, I mean, for lack of a better term, it's just compared to the stuff we were just discussed in this conversation before, it's just compared to that. The Russia, Ukraine stuff is just not like that intellectually high. Like it's just, it's not that I don't like. It's not that novel. It's not that. Um, I, it's not stuff like listeners wouldn't be exposed to. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe. I think. I, I think that, that that's that's where that's where things might be a little confused on. The, and this this shouldn't change your decision uh, in any way. But <laughs> the I think that the what's what's this is not to a general populace. This is not to a general audience. This is not to. Um, That's what I figured, yeah. This is not to a predetermined marketing demographic who might have had an algorithm suggest certain people mm-hmm. that in, in either written or, you know, video form. The And there are other people that I've read that I could have, you know, asked. But the fact is, is they're not fellow travelers. And so, right. um, and when I say that, it's like, well, they might be inter- interested in similar things. We might be able to be fellow travelers, but we just haven't met. I don't know what they're doing. Um, the fact is, is like, we're talking. And so when you say, well, other people have said it, so it's not like it's original. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm the function of Underground Theory Volume 1 is that when a person comes to an IRL event, when I'm on tour this fall, if they come to San Diego when, when uh, Andrew, the big Signorelli here, and I are doing our thing on therapism in San Diego, people are going to come from all over the place because there's going to be posters up that are very provocative, that make people want to think about therapism. They're going to come, they're Mm. going to hear all this stuff, and there's going to be this fat book called Underground Theory Volume 1. And the goal is not that everybody reads it cover to cover and then has this profound experience. The goal is that a couple of people have that experience. The goal is that a couple of people have their mind thoroughly fucked forever and they'll never be the same after they're finished with this, not because it gets them on some line, it gets them to see the world in one specific way, but because it systematically exposes them to so many perspectives that are not a part of the discourse, that are not even a part of their algorithmic silos, and that's just literally not even on their on their radar, and that a lot of these people are nobodies. 
they're hearing the the words from nobodies. Like I know you're not a nobody, but relatively speaking, we're yeah. all nobodies here, right? And so mm. in that sense, that's 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 why it's like no, no, like uh, Andrew, Andrew, it, he's gonna bring in his original thing to the therapism thing. But also, there's already books on the topic. We could just tell people go read those people. But it's like no, they're gonna hear it from us because if there's things that are a through line for all of the conversations that we all have here. Or, or if there's certain things that are representative of things that can be a part of the discourse here that might filter out certain people who are just so fragile when it comes to the topic of Ukraine or whatever, we want to filter those people out, right? We, we like, oh, yeah, we, we'll bring Nina Power on, like, absolutely. If, if, you're, if you can't handle that, uh, guess what? Every university is waiting for you with arms wide open and then they'll they'll put you in their special little rooms and give you crayons right like fuck off we don't give a shit that, that's the basic point and so mm -hmm. yeah anyway with all of that said i haven't actually talked about underground theory volume one very much throughout the last like 24 hours of, of streaming and so this is basically well, um yeah this is basically the most i've said about it that's cool i mean i uh yeah, I don't. I know I can't stay on here too long, right? I'm sure you have other people to go to. But when you said that your goal is to teach fewer, like, but like better, like fewer rather than than many, you're embodying the role of like this. You kind of evoke something I've I've, I've written, which I, I haven't like published, and it's sort of a part of this idea that I, that I'm kind of working on, which you know that it's related to the myth stuff we we're talking about, the distinguish distinguishing the politics from the the theory but it, i have this kind of like and now it's almost like um it's a bit of a it's not i wouldn't say a framework but it's like a sort of a, a allegory i guess that i feel explains that and when you when you use it's the idea of the the teacher the preacher and the shaman as like three distinct roles now you mean what you're doing is the teacher because you're just you're there trying to teach what you believe is true which you believe is true. I say what you believe is true because, you know, objective truth is a hard thing to say, but what you, it's like parisia, you know, the term like uh, Foucault talks about Socrates, parisia, like you're, you're telling the truth, even if it's like, you feel like it might not be convenient politically, career-wise or whatever. You feel like you're telling people what they need to hear. You're, you're doing education. And then there's the preacher, which is, doing a it is doing education but with a goal uh, and a mass audience and is by its nature kind of dumbing things down a little bit like a, to a necessary extent like okay if the, pre the preacher the teacher the teacher maybe is like the bible saint paul is the preacher kind of simplifies it in a way that he's able to spread it in large extent now the shaman is the interesting one because the shaman is is the preacher who thinks he's a teacher the shaman is the person who believes in the simplified version of reality that you're trying to, to give to a mass oh, audience. And thus they get drunk off their own ideology. They get drunk so off their own So this would be like cruelty. the guru. That's the, the analogy. And the shaman, and I use that, that word very specifically because you know like the archetype of the shaman, right? They think they're enlightened. They think they're super smarter than everyone. And, but they're actually believing in like a simplified version of reality that they're supposed to just be giving out for practical reasons but they actually take that to be the reality and then they don't think they need to learn more they don't think they need to grapple with complexity they think that's the truth 
And that's the highest form of delusion. And I actually remember, it's kind of similar to that big other quote you mentioned from that Zizek book. Like the right, shaman right. probably is that, like the description of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, 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 I think my main function is, and I kind of explained this to J.M. Adams, though I do kind of want to be a teacher, I'm also fundamentally like, uh, I'm always like a scene creator. And, you know, let's, let's make a scene. And, and, and my main thing is to take a bunch of people who won't, they'll show up, but they're too busy working on what they're doing to usually teach. They do have it in them, but there is that sort of need for some kind of a structure for them to even be in. And, and it requires someone literally hystericizing them and to take those people and, and corral them and then contain them, not forever, not in the perma gulag, but like, you know, just the, the point of corralling and, and, and gulagging someone like Mikey or Catron. It's like, yeah, you can listen to them talk with this person, talk with that person, and they'll kind of go all over the place. And the people that they talk to are usually good at uh, having conversations. But what I, what I think is needed is people with the teacher spirit, but also the organizing skill set to be able to, to kind of say, no, no, let's, let's walk people who don't know what the fuck is going on through this. And that's good for me because I don't know what's going on most of the time. And so it's like, you know, like in five years, once you've really mastered this whole field, like you're going to teach, uh, and you know, the, the continuation of the course Catron teaches and, and I'll hystericize you and you can walk us through all these books. It'll be great. But that's the, that's the vision, right? That's my vision is that this, it's not a university because universities don't do this. It's a bunch of, you know, it, it, there's not someone there whose job is to like be the representative idiot who says, I don't know what's going on. Can you break this down for us all? And then like, but, but is also like trying to develop their skills as an interviewer, trying to develop their skills as an organizer. It's, it's so, but you're right though. It is the teacher spirit fundamentally that drives me. And that for me, what's true is that we learn through contradiction. Like that's the Zizekian thing for me is that the dialectic side, uh, the contradiction side of dialectics is more important than any kind of possible synthesis. Right, that that, that is sure. prioritized, right? And it's not contradiction with with knives and 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 blunt objects or guns and things. It's contradiction with you know obviously dialectically discursively contradictions. And so, like ultimately, with I, I, for instance, here's a here's a dialectical thing I'd like to see. Uh, to see you in conversation with Samuel Loncar, who was on stream today. Now, I don't think that I think that the two of you have more synergy than fundamental disagreements. And what I mean is like, he thinks about religion in a way that very few people think about it. And so it's like what you're doing with myth and what he's doing with religion. Mm. And then you both have this basis in theory, not just Marxist theory, but other kinds of theory. You're both right. doing, you're both doing that. And so like, there's so many things where I was like, Oh fuck man, if I could get, is he a, is he a battalion? Like, does he like George Bataille? He's, He's very influenced by Heidegger, though he's not a Heideggerian. He, his approach to philosophy is therapeutic. So, uh, he talks about it as a form of psychotherapy. Um, but he's also, I, I was surprised to find out how much of a sort of uh, Marx-based class analysis has actually been operative with him through all of his thinking ever since. Because when he went to Yale, he had already read Marx. And so then that shit was kind of present with him the whole way through. And so it's like, 
he's not he's not in, he's not he's not boxable i don't know if he would actually identify as a marxist but like it comes through very strongly it's very obvious so i find the best thinkers aren't boxable at all right yeah. but to be to do politics you have to have almost like a bit of a box that's that's the, the which whole is trick, why i right? think which is why i think that every thinker yeah. every thinker should probably go through a period of moratorium where they do not where they critically suspend everything and Certainly, do not yeah. commit to a political cause before questioning everything right like that's the wrong order in which to do things right yeah i'm Obviously, sure that, though yeah Obviously, though, every everybody will do action and practice before they do theory because theory comes from burnout. Theory comes from and I, I don't mean like revolutionary theory where it's all been written out like it's prescriptive. No, I mean like the theory that goes, well, why have we been fucking up and what's wrong with everything? Right, like That right. comes from a kind of burnout, you know? Sure. I mean, I started off making videos kind of all with the more preacher role, like the one I mentioned that trichotomy there. Like, uh, but I ended up kind of getting more into the teacher role as like, I, I just found it a lot harder because I, I'm more, I make videos based on what I'm currently reading. Um, that's where right. I started doing more like in the past year. But when I first made it, I just wanted to say, okay, how can I like make sneak in like anti-capitalist, socialist, Marxist analysis into like pop culture stuff. But then after, as I started learning, I was just questioning way more things and it got more to a point where, you know, I, I said more into that teacher role but i still try to walk that line because of that medium you know like youtube is that's, a medium where you can't afford to be too complex like you mentioned at the start when you're introducing me that it, it's a little bit hard to like when i because i try to like tackle these things with a lot of research it is a line that i find that it's very hard to walk like how to what how much do you simplify without watering down the content because i don't want to like water it down to the point where it's like like I, you know, this is almost like misleading. Uh, but you also need to like simplify things in a way so people can get like the base message. And so you can just make the damn video because you know not, not everyone has time to like listen to the, the podcast, right? Because I try to be more long form in the podcast. I do the one time radio, which are more akin to like, you know, st stuff you do, like, uh, like more long form and stuff like that, right? Uh, this, obviously yours is this. even more longer form. But this, like videos, like just making a yes. damn twenty minute people's attention span, right? Yeah, they can't watch like five minutes, dude. Well, that's the problem so when your big really other, hard. when your big, when your big other has the smallest attention span ever, and your that's your audience, then your attention span also suffers. And so, part of my resistance to the attention economy, the resistance to become an influencer, you're right that it's costly. I'd like to point out the fact that the fundraiser for a 26 hour stream right now has had one donation of $50, right? This has been on the screen for the last two days. It's kind of embarrassing. I keep thinking about like, well, maybe I should just take that progress bar off the screen because it, you know, 26 hours of streaming $50 is, is like, well, that's kind of a failure, but I'm also proud of it. And I'm proud of it for one reason. First of all, everybody who's come on stream, everybody who's been involved has forked over some money to a course for some working class blue collar worker like Mikey to fucking teach them theory. So it's like, first of all, they paid for something real. They're not just I'll donating. I'll, to def it. I'll definitely chip in for the courses, hundred percent. I, I, I didn't. I, I kind yeah. of was like, see, I was like super busy when you're hitting me up about this. Like I almost forgot like this was happening until two days ago. Uh, yeah. But like, so, uh, but I knew you're at your like the courses you're planning, and I'm very excited for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and my my basic point is just that. 
I take the lower view count numbers, the lower like numbers, the lower engagement. Like I, on the one side, my ego and, and the, the part of me that's duped by the attention economy and its big other, it does take a hit. Like I understand how it is perceived. But on the sure. other side of it, though, I'm proud for the underground fucking vibe, which is the people who remain for long form content are a different ilk. It's a different kind of feather that's flocking together here. And yeah, it's smaller, but it's fucking based. And it's like, it's like Nance said, this is the fucking meat and potatoes shit. Like the algorithm brought him to a point where he was like, wait a minute, what the fuck? And so, mm -hmm. you know, if I get that from like 10 people instead of like a thousand, I'll, I'll take it because that's a compliment. And so if I get $50 instead of a thousand after 26 hour thing, that here's the thing, the conversation quality speaks for itself. And also... Uh, yeah, no, I've literally been streaming for 26 hours. I think the point is I'm not hiding behind a teleprompter or hiding behind a video essay like I, I wasn't, I was never behind a teleprompter, but I was hiding behind the video essay for a while. Now it's not completely hiding behind. There's really a time to work through things and to be very measured with everything you say because you're thinking things through. Well, so you mentioned so the, so the, the, again, with the yeah. masks. That's yeah. why I avoided, but I, I still avoid. Blending my personal life with my like YouTube political right. stuff just because and I think it'll become unavoidable in the future. But um, I just There's saw what that now. did to people who like, you know, Peter Coffin man. like yeah. you, you were yeah, yeah, yeah. friends with Peter Coffin. I, I saw that someone who like to the extreme blended his private life, their private life with their YouTube life. It's and true. it just destroys someone psychologically like. You have to wear a mask. And then you, you, the thing about where I saw it happen to Peter Coffin is they, I thought they were onto a lot of really, they were onto a lot of things that the left tube weren't. They were onto like, yeah. they had a lot of things correct, but they ended up performing this like mask, like this, uh, where they got into the ML like stuff, where like they ended up associating themselves with people who are like hardliners on that. And they couldn't back down because now you've associated yourself with a group, a mask, you're playing that. You, it's it's really it's a dangerous position. Then you get actually into all sort of delusions. You know, I don't know. It's it's difficult. Like I, I think there's there is some strength in the kind of um, uh, anonymity. Like, kind of, I try to I try to like honestly separate private life. But I think in the future that'll be hard to do. But I think um, I think it's yeah. that that is the issue is that it's inevitable. But until it until the time that becomes where it's right, you have more freedom with that anonymity. I absolutely believe it. it's more freedom in, in, in a sense, right? And, but, but you know, it's, it definitely is different to be doing something with people who primarily aren't behind avatars using aliases. The, the majority of people here using their names, at least their first name um, or at least their face. Like, I think that changes the dynamic because there's a bit more skin in the game in this sort of weird sense, but with that, I just want to say thank you for bringing it for bringing it today. You really did, and uh, I think we need to switch out here to the. Uh, I'm gonna roll the uh, the PSA, and uh, it's and then we're gonna be back for the conversation with the big Signorelli, Master Signified Bodies, aka Andrew Flores, the one, the only, and I couldn't be more excited for the fact that you two overlapped and got to kind of meet and have a conversation. And I hope the two of you appear on one another's channels in the near future, because I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of potential there. So thank you so much for coming on, man.
I don't know what just happened, but let's roll the, uh, let's roll it. And now a quick message from our sponsors. Just kidding. This will be neither quick nor from any corporate or state sponsorship. What follows is a description of Theory Underground, a thank you to its patrons, information about the upcoming tour, and three brand new courses that you might want to enroll in. Stay for the whole thing to get promo codes to save on those courses or information about the financial aid scholarship. Theory Underground is a philosophy lecture course-gated social media site and publishing house by and for working class intellectuals and renegade academics. The subject matters dealt with at Theory Underground are the most important, yet neglected, for understanding ourselves, the world, and ways of possibly changing it. Because we have no corporate or state sponsors, only a small band of patrons, everything in this first year of operation helps immensely. Special thank yous to Bert, Nance, Marilyn, Carl, and Adam for your help in the $50 per month patron tier. If you want to help but the $50 tier is too much, Consider donating towards meals and gasoline via Venmo or PayPal. The gasoline is for our countrywide tour of the U.S., where we aim to meet with supporters of this effort and do events to draw in new people who do not necessarily belong to marketing demographics predetermined by the attention economy. We will be giving lectures, leading discussions, and promoting several brand new books. Our goal is to only go to towns and cities where we have personal invitations from at least one person. We are doing this underground style, which for the hardcore punk scene in the US meant coming for long enough to get to know the area and do multiple events, not this modern treadmill of a new city each night in an attempt to maximize fame and profit. If you are interested in being a host, guide, or volunteer, then please fill out the form at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground.com forward slash us hyphen tour hyphen 2023. In an attempt to utilize the resources made publicly available, we will be using libraries for most of our events. So if you have a local library card and can reserve a space for us, we would most appreciate it. Alternatively, some of you might have access to pretty epic venue spaces. Just let us know ahead of time. Now for the courses. The three upcoming courses are What is Sex, Digital Literacy and CMT, Critical Media Theory, and Being and Time. All courses at Theory Underground are available after the fact on demand, but some people get a lot more out of doing it live with a cohort. If you are looking to think deeply about the devices we have become reliant on while experimenting with new ways of reclaiming your attention span and relationship with yourself and others, then check out Digital Literacy and Critical Media Theory a course that is structured to combat the attention economy while strategically using some of its tools to help us gain a freer relationship to our devices. If interested, an introduction to this course will be shared at the end of this video. Just make sure to click on it. The lectures for this course take place on the second Sunday of every month for six months, starting in May. If you sign up at Tier 3, you also get access to the Recovery Group component, which also meets once per month. Enroll with promo code CMTEARLYBIRDYT before May 13th for 20% off. 
If you are frustrated by the discourse revolving around gender ideology, left and right, then join us in thinking deeper about sex. Cadell Last of Philosophy Portal is joining up with Theory Underground to teach Alenka Zupanchik's What is Sex? one of the most succinct and cutting-edge works of theory dealing with the topic. Zupanchik is one of the Slovenian circle's most incisive critics of both naive progressivism and reactionary tendencies when it comes to thinking about the relationship between sex, culture, and subjectivity. If interested, watch Three Reasons to Read What is Sex, which will be shared on screen at the end of this video. What is Sex begins in May and goes through June, meeting for four lecture sessions and, surprise, you will actually get to meet Alenka Zupanchik herself. Use promo code WHATISSEXEARLYBIRDYT before May 7th for 20% off. And just so you know, everybody, don't stress the capitalization. I just make it that way so it's more readable. It's not case sensitive. Being in time is one of the most notorious, profound, and difficult works of philosophy from the last 200 years. Its deconstruction of modernity and fundamental challenge to scientism is a prerequisite rite of passage for any thinker who wants to seriously engage with continental philosophy, social theory, or world change. In this course, you will learn about what Heidegger means by being, being in the world, Dasein, being unto death, and so many other crucial developments. But more important than all these buzzwords is just taking on this work itself and wrestling with the text. Doing so will rapidly accelerate your reading comprehension abilities and simultaneously challenge some of your most deep-seated presuppositions. As before, an introductory video to this course is shared on the end screen of this video or can be accessed from the links in the description. Being in Time Division 1 starts in June and ends July 22nd. Division 2 begins August 19th and goes through October. To sign up for Division 1 today, use the promo code BEINGINTIMEEARLYBIRDYT before the end of May for 20% off. If you feel obstructed by the cost of these courses, then we have good news. But before getting into the financial aid info, why are there even price tags at all, much less tiered pricing? First, because some people just want to audit, whereas others want constructive critical feedback or even one-on-one -on -one sessions. The tiers exist so that you can get the value you are seeking while compensating me, Dave, fairly for the time and energy required. Second, the prices set for these courses aim to make Theory Underground sustainable, meaning that it will bring in enough to pay for the costs of the operation, including my personal bills since I want to be a co-earner in the household when my soon-to-be wife and I start a family. <laughs> Thirdly, <laughs> Thirdly, People tend to take the things they pay for more seriously, and we want you to get the most out of this experience. With those reasons aside, we do not seek to exclude anyone who is struggling just to get by. We have a financial aid scholarship option for people who are currently between jobs or who live in a country on a cheap currency, like many of you who watch from Thailand, India, Mexico, or Poland. To name a few of the residents of some of the people who have already received financial aid scholarships in the last couple of months. Because I know what trying to study theory under the stresses of housing insecurity and poverty is like, the scholarship was set up during the first month of operation. Simply fill it out at https colon forward slash forward slash theory hyphen underground dot com forward slash scholarship. Last but not least, stay tuned for the Theory Underground app coming soon to an app store near you on your phone. Yeah, and seriously, thank you for 
listening or watching to this point. And uh, yeah. Thanks. We look forward to taking these courses with you. Bye.